tonight I gave you some uh, charts and some confusing pictures, so if uh, you get lost with me, you can just look at those and get lost with them. Um, hopefully I'll be able to explain them to you, and they'll be helpful as we dig in a little bit. So we've spent uh, several months now walking through various um, important elements to what is necessary in order for us to um, to have a good grasp on what we're looking for when we read the Bible, when we study the scriptures, and uh, to be able to come to the Bible and study it in a way that um, we are able to benefit from what God has given to us in his word. So um, I thought it was important that we spend a little time. Uh, this will probably take us uh, a few weeks um, but I, I want to talk about something that um, I get questions about quite often, and especially from either non-believers or new believers, um, want to know how, how is it that we have the Bible? Where do we get these 66 books of the Bible, and um, why are they what they are, and why not other things, and all of that? How, do we, how is it determined which books we're going to go into here, and and all of those sorts of things. So, And how did it get from Greek and Hebrew into English and all of those? So uh, we're going to spend some time on that tonight. We're probably going to do um, a, a broad overview of a lot of these things, and then we'll, we'll come back through it again and in more detail on each uh, point if, if we need to. So um, the first thing I want to uh, I want to do is just ask, uh, just in general, and I'm... I just want you guys to throw out some responses. Um, where where did the Bible come from? How do we how do we get what we have? And why why can we trust it? Go ahead. Okay, prophecy. Okay, certain men inspired by God. What else? Okay. So we have uh, we have letters, and it's one of the genres we talked about in the scriptures. So um, the writings of uh, the apostles. Okay, good. So the the work of the the church councils, um, the church uh, using its authority as a church in order to determine whether or not the books are to be part of what we call the canon of scripture. Any other any other thoughts? All right, that's good. Well, let's. Um, the the first thing I want you to do, actually, on the back of the top page on your packet, there's a little chart there. This is the process from the scriptures being written through us having the Bible in our hands and being able to read it and study it on our own. Um, and these are all the steps that we're going to walk through. Um, so we believe, Second uh, Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, it is as we call it the Word of God. So the Bible is written by God. God is the divine author of Scripture, and so that's the that's the top uh, the top box that you see on that chart. Um, the Scriptures are from God. But how did God record the Bible? He didn't, uh, he didn't have it inscribed and throw it down from the sky and 
land a bunch of copies on the earth for us to read, he used human authors. Um, and we'll look at the scriptures uh, dealing with that in just a moment. Uh, so this is, this, is the, um, this is the doctrine that we refer, and you're going to be flipping around this packet quite a bit, um, of inspiration. Flip another page on the back of that. I just want to give us a definition that helps us because this is a word that we're going to use a lot. The inspiration of Scripture. The definition I put here, that extraordinary or supernatural divine influence vouchsafed to those who wrote the Holy Scriptures, rendering their writings infallible. So that's maybe another word we need to stop and talk about. What does it mean for something to be infallible? Okay. It, it has no error. It is perfect. Okay? Um, quote, uh, the quote is from 2 Timothy 3.16. I just mentioned, This is true of all the sacred writings, not in the sense of their being works of genius or of supernatural insight, but as theonuistic. In other words, um, inspired by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit doing this work, breathed into by God in such a sense that the writers were supernaturally guided to express exactly what God intended them to express as a revelation of his mind and will. The testimony of the sacred writers themselves abundantly demonstrates this truth. And if they are infallible as teachers of doctrine, then the doctrine of plenary inspiration, what is that? What is plenary inspiration? What does the word plenary mean? Okay, whole, complete, total inspiration that all of the scriptures are inspired by God. That, um, that this is, um, on top of this, there's uh, what's implied in all of this, and the definition doesn't go into it, but um, what we don't believe is what is called uh, verbal or mechanical dictation. In other words, when... Paul was writing his letters, he wasn't sitting there listening to God tell him what to write, and so he wrote it while he was hearing God talk to him. But rather, Paul was writing letters as the Apostle Paul, but he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he was writing. So it is very much Paul's writing, but it is God's Word that he's writing. The two are functioning together. It's not... um, He's not hearing, it's not like a secretary listening to the dictaphone play in her ear while she types out what's being said. Um, so the, the inspiration of Scripture, if they're infallible, must be accepted. There are no errors in the Bible as it came from God. None have been proved to exist, even to this day. No one has ever been able to point to an error in the Scriptures. Difficulties and phenomena we cannot explain are not errors. All these books of the Old and New Testament are inspired. We do not say that they contain, but rather that they are the Word of God. Now, just so you know, that is a reference to, um, uh, without going into all the history of it, there was uh, when, um, in the American church, when they started to drift into some very liberal theology um, at the leadership of a man named Karl Barth, um, there was a teaching called Bartianism, and he talked about the Bible. The Bible contains the Word of God. Well, that sounds really 
wonderful and special and like we would agree with it. But what he's saying is the Bible in itself as a whole is not the Word of God, but contained within there, there are bits and pieces that are the Word of God. So this definition makes very clear. We're not saying that the Bible contains the Word of God, but that it is in its entirety. Again, the plenary, the full, total, complete inspiration of Scripture. The gift of inspiration rendered the writers the organs of God for the infallible communication of his mind and will in the very manner and words in which it was originally given. As to the nature of inspiration, we have no information. In other words, how does all of that work? It's a supernatural work of God. We don't have, uh, God did not reveal to us exactly how he does that. This only we know. It rendered the writers infallible. Now, does that mean Paul, in everything Paul ever said, was, does that mean he was infallible? No, what does that mean? Okay, great. The scriptures they wrote are infallible. So, here's uh, maybe a, a tough question to wrestle with. We know from reading First and Second Corinthians that there's also a third letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? Is that letter infallible? John says yes. Why? Why is that letter infallible? Okay, we don't, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is it wasn't important that we understood and read and knew what was in it or else it would be in our Bibles, right? we would have 3 Corinthians, but we don't. So whether that means it wasn't infallible or maybe that means there were simply issues being dealt with that do not pertain to us uh, throughout the ages that weren't necessary, but for whatever reason, the Lord determined that we didn't need the third letter to the Corinthians and therefore we don't have it. Yes, sir. Is lost. There, there are no. Yeah, he references it in, I think, Second Corinthians. He references it. In, yeah, and there, I mean, given the vast amount of letters that we have, we have thirteen letters contained in the scriptures from the Apostle Paul. It's, it's got to be assumed that he wrote many, many more letters to the various churches that he, uh, that he uh, planted, and and many letters to the various churches we already have letters to. Uh, very likely that he wrote multiple letters to the Ephesians and um, to the people at Colossae or whatever. So, um, All right, they were all equally inspired and are all equally infallible. In other words, one writer of Scripture is not greater than any other. Um, all the writers that God used are equally infallible, are equally inspired. The inspiration of the sacred writers did not change their characters, they retained all their individual peculiarities as thinkers or writers. So what that means is um, if I was an inspired, infallible writer of Scripture, then when I wrote something, if you knew my writing style, you would read what I wrote and you would say, well, um, I know that Nick Kennecott wrote this. This is in the style that he writes. Um, but it just so happens that what I wrote was infallible and inspired by God. And you could read another letter that Kathy Delk wrote. If it was infallible and inspired, 
um, and see that that's in her style. She uses her own grammar. Uh, the way that she writes, her, it's very unique to her and the way she lays out the argument. Um, but it happens to be inspired by God and it's infallible in its entirety. So, um, so God didn't overtake the individuals to write the scriptures in a way that they weren't, uh, they weren't thinking in their own minds. They weren't having to work through, how am I going to word this? How am I going to say this? The same way we would write, they're writing, but they're inspired as they're doing so. So what they're writing is true, is from God, is important for them and for us to know, and uh, in the end is revealed to them directly by the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, sir. Um, and we'll look at various forms of revelation that God used, but uh, certainly we're, we're talking about all the writers of Scripture, not just... In fact, when Paul wrote Second Timothy three sixteen, he was referring mainly to the Old Testament Scriptures um, when he said all Scriptures breathed out by God. All they had at that point was the Old Testament canon. So, um, Okay, any questions on inspiration? We tracking what that is? Okay, good. Um, now flip to this uh, next page, the modes of special revelation. So real quick, before we jump into that, God has revealed himself in two ways. Two types of revelation, what are they? Say again. Okay, general revelation and special revelation. What is general revelation? Okay. All of creation. God has revealed himself to us in all of creation. We see that in Psalm 19.1, Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul talks about that. Uh, Psalm 19.1, Behold, uh, oh, behold uh, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, um, and the, the skies declare his handiwork. That we have this... Uh, we have this statement that God's glory is revealed in the skies. Um, Paul talks about in Romans 1 that all men everywhere have enough information revealed to them about God, one, because the law of God is written on the conscience of every man, but two, because we can just look outside and look at trees and grass and stars and the sky and everything around us and recognize there is a creator he is God. He does exist. That is enough to condemn every man everywhere because we do not acknowledge God as God. Hence the need for, and he goes on to argue later in Romans chapter 10, that's why we need preachers to preach the gospel. Because people need to understand God as God because of our sin nature. So general revelation reveals to us God exists. He is there. He has created all men everywhere know that God exists. And those who claim to be atheists have simply, Paul says, suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. So an atheist may be an atheist intellectually, but the fact that they function with a conscience very much proves the fact that they recognize God's existence. They recognize there is a judge. That's why atheists don't just randomly go out and kill their neighbors. They know God exists. Um, so that's one mode of revelation. Is that sufficient to save? No, not at all. What, how is a man saved? Say again? Sure. 
by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law, trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Hence the need for, as uh, often comes up, what about the aborigine in Australia who's never heard the gospel? He has seen God revealed to him in general revelation. Unless he bows his knee to Christ, when he dies, he will be condemned. That doesn't seem fair. Who are you, O man, to question God? Romans 9. That's why we send people to preach the gospel to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. We want to see them come to repentance and faith. What do they need? They need special revelation. They need the word of God. So there are three primary ways in which God has revealed himself in special revelation. They are these listed on your chart here. The first is by miraculous events. In other words, God's uh, historical ways working uh, throughout uh, history. A few examples here. The call of Abram, when God gave, uh, God um, made the covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. The birth of Isaac, uh, the Passover, um, the, cr- uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. No one's going to look at any of these and say um, that they're not miraculous events, right? All of these are very miraculous in how they happen. This is one way God has revealed himself in the past, using miraculous events. Secondly is through divine speech, through human language. So, um, audible speech, those who heard the voice of God. So, Adam in the garden or Samuel in the temple. Remember when God spoke to Samuel and at first he didn't recognize the voice. Uh, The prophetic office, through the words, through the voice of the prophets who would stand and say, Thus saith the Lord, here is the word of God. And we have many Uh, prophetic books in the scriptures. Dreams. We see the dreams of Daniel and Joseph, God uh, revealing himself to them through dreams, through visions, Ezekiel, Zechariah, uh, John the Revelator in uh, the book of Revelation. And, of course, through the scriptures, as we just read 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures God breathed. Now, the third, being visible manifestations, God showing himself in visible form. So the theophanies of Christ. And when we talk about theophanies, what we're saying is that God revealed himself in visible form as Jesus Christ, right? Who who can behold who can look at who can look face to face with God the Father? No man, right? So when we see when we see theophanies, when we see God present that people can see him and he's visible to them, we have to understand that to be God the Son, right? It could not have possibly been God the Father because we, no man can behold him and live. So the theophanies that we see in the Old Testament, the presence of God in visible form in the Old Testament is Jesus. So um, when Daniel was in the lion's den, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the furnace... There's argument about whether or not that was a theophany or an angel. Regardless, it was. Uh, there's a likelihood that it was Jesus' presence. So visible manifestations of God. Um, 
Shekinah glory. This is um, the visible glory of God being revealed in various forms and ways. And then, of course, in Jesus Christ. So these are the visible manifestations. So out of these three modes of special revelation, which one do we rely upon? All of them? None of them? Some of them? Okay. Scripture. We narrow it down to one. Scripture. Why? Why... Why don't we look at special revelation and still look for miraculous events and visible manifestations and prophetic words and dreams and visions and all of these? Why don't we look to that anymore if that's the way God has functioned in the past? Okay, exactly. It's all been fulfilled in Christ. All of these prophetic words that were given were fulfilled in Christ. And then... The apostles were established by Christ, the office of the apostleship. The church was established. The scriptures were written. The canon is closed. We have, in other words, we don't need those things. We have, we have greater than having to sit around and wait for a vision or a dream. We can open our Bibles and read it and see it for ourselves. Yes. Okay, um, you're going to get us into a, <laughs> that's okay. Um, the one, the one uh, Kaylee reference, I, wanna look, I do want to look at that first. Actually, it's on the front of your uh, packet. And this is, this is very important as we, uh, as we work through this, because we have to understand why it's so important that we are relying on scriptures alone and not now looking to uh, prophetic words of God and visions and dreams and everything else. Uh, so the first place we need to see is Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I think this is verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So... In other words, God did communicate to us in one way through the prophets, but now that Christ has come, he's communicating to us in another way, namely through his son and how has his son communicated to us through fulfilling the law, appointing prophet, uh, appointing apostles to record the scriptures and to canonize the Bible. So from there... Um, we can try to think of the, the, quick, the quickest way to do this. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. Thirteen. Okay, we have, we have an indication in the scriptures, um, this written out for us very clearly that these things will pass away. So the question remains, well, when is that? What is the timing of that? Okay, so this, uh, this isn't, the, we don't want to place our whole weight on this passage because there are some, there are some issues here that, um, that don't lend fully to um, the scriptures being uh, uh, the final 
and, and not needing prophecy in tongues and all of these sorts of things. But we do at least have the indication from 1 Corinthians 13 that these things will pass away. So it's not that they're going to continue on forever. So that is an important thing to establish. So 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So that's the big question. Well, what is the perfect? There's, there's a lot of disagreement among, uh, among Christians about this. Is the perfect the closed canon of Scripture? Is the perfect the return of Jesus? Is it the new kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth? Um, I tend to believe it is the return of Christ because he talks about um, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Well, what's the then he's talking about? Then when the perfect comes. So he says I'll be face to face with the perfect. Well, it doesn't make sense to talk about being face to face with the scriptures, because it's talking about human form. So when I'm face to face with God, the perfect has come. When I'm face to face with Christ. So now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Well, I have the Bible, but I don't know fully. I still only know in part because I'm not infallible. I'm still in a sinful flesh. So at least what we can draw from this is that these things will pass away. We've got that established. So the bigger question is not going to be argued from individual verses, but rather um, a, a larger argument of what were these things necessary for? Why did we have prophecy and tongues? What was, when you see tongues in the Bible, what was it used for? Okay, to establish the church for a to give us scripture, which was prophecy, right? Tongues were used in a prophetic manner. What's the only other time you see foreign tongues being used in the Bible? Think Old Testament. What's that? Yeah. God's judgment. See, the only times you see tongues being used in the scriptures are when God is judging a people. Well, that's, we don't want to see tongues then, right? <laughs> or the other time is when... Uh, Prophecy is being given. Scriptures are being written. The church is being established. So we see that at Pentecost. Uh, we see that in the early churches. But tongues is always tied to prophecy. And you remember later on in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's making the argument, um, I, wish that, I wish that you would just kind of chill with wanting everyone wanting to speak in tongues i'd much rather that you're prophesying why because we're we're establishing the church we're establishing the rule of law we're establishing what god has commanded here but you even see further on why why did paul not give timothy instructions about the use of tongues within the church if it was such a big deal in some of the other churches why why do you think that is what's the last letter that paul wrote does anyone know? Second Timothy. First and second Timothy, he wrote towards the very end of his life, right before he went to death. 
There's no mention of tongues. There's no mention of prophecy. At that point, the vast majority of the New Testament had already come to either be written or the writers were, um, were already functioning in the church, but the apostles were all going away. They were dying. They were being martyred. Uh, the body of Scripture that we have was established. So the issue then is if tongues and prophecy are tied to the office of the apostle, but the apostles are dying, what then happens to the gift? Either it gets passed on, which we don't see anywhere because Paul didn't pass it on, and we don't see that anywhere in the scriptures, or it died with the apostles. Why? Because it served its purpose. The purpose being to give us the scriptures, to establish the church, to show the miraculous work of God, that what was going on was truly of God. Um, I, I mean, just imagine that. You're, you're in a group of people, and then all of a sudden, all of us start to speak in different languages, not some crazy babble that we make up, but actual human languages that people from other nations around us understand. And someone can stand up and say, oh, he's saying this, this, and that. That's miraculous. That is one way God showed his power, his authority, his work within the church and establishing it and bringing it to pass. So that's like the, uh, the shortened version of like four sermons on 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Um, but that's, it's really an important issue, especially in our day, because um, some have taken this and just run wild with it and... Um, it's unfortunate because it gets us away from the Word of God. It gets us away from the sufficiency of God's Word. So when everyone's standing up and saying, I have a word from the Lord, well, who am I to say you don't? It's very subjective. We want the objective Word of God to, uh, to dictate what God has said. So anyone have anything to add to that or clarify or questions? Yeah. Well... Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that is something that is often talked about. Um, you know, I don't know of anyone who believes that those things have ceased, who would say that God wouldn't do something miraculous if God were to do for his own desires, for whatever reason, do something miraculous. We're not talking about the miraculous work of God passing away, but rather... The, the miraculous gifts of individuals. So God will heal people, and we pray for that, but we don't believe someone specifically that Alan has the gift of healing, that there may be a miraculous time when uh, a missionary goes into a, uh, a place they've never been and they hear someone speak in a native tongue and they understand it, maybe. That's a miracle, but that doesn't mean anyone has the gift of tongues or interpretation. It's a miraculous thing that God has caused to happen. But when we're talking about tongues, we're, that has to be tied to prophecy. And when it's tied to prophecy, that means it is a word from God, a direct revelation from God that should be recorded as Scripture. That's where the, that's where the issue comes in. So, um, but... Man, I th we just have to be so careful about, you know, the mission field produces all sorts of crazy stories and everything else that, you know, um, do I want to believe those things are going on? Yeah. 
Um, but as I look to the scriptures and what they establish for us in their authority, sufficiency, and the call, the loud call from the scriptures that we need to go and bring the objective word to these people because they don't have it, I don't see the Holy Spirit functioning sort of in this willy-nilly fashion apart from the word of God. Um, so it should, it should be tied to it. Yes. Sure, and I want to be—I want to be clear that, you know, in saying that, we're not saying that people who maybe walk in those things aren't Christians, or you know that they're, um, you know, we don't agree with them. Um, but I'm not questioning whether or not they're Christians. I think that maybe confused about the nature of what those things are. Right. Yeah, there's there's a made that's a good very good point. So when anyone stands up and proclaims, Thus saith the Lord, they're doing in essence the the office, they're fulfilling the office of the prophet, proclaiming the prophetic word of God. But it's not it's not me saying, um, you know, here's the word from the Lord for the day and me telling you what I think God told me. It's saying, Thus saith the Lord and by the way, turn to this in your Bible so you can read along and see whether or not what I'm saying is right and true. That's, that is the work of a prophet. Prophecy, when we generally think prophecy, we're thinking about you know, some of the Old Testament prophets predicting future that's going to be fulfilled in Christ and everything else. So there is a major... Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, the prophets in the Old Testament, you know, we have to look back to what were the various forms of revelation that um, there, there, was a, there was a different, it was the, the prophetic office that was being, um, was being worked through. So when you have the prophet, when you have uh, Jeremiah, when you have Isaiah doing these, this work of the prophet, you've got to think someone like Isaiah, he stood in the heavenly throne room of Christ. So that's a little bit different than me saying, um, hey, I uh, think um, I have a word from the Lord. <laughs> uh, behold, I stand before the Lord. I'm uh, silenced because a seraphim flew down and put hot coals on my lips. Um, there's a major distinction there between what they were experiencing with God and what we do. Um, so they were getting direct revelation from God in terms of, you know, whether it was dreams, visions, uh, verbal or actual visual and being uh, brought, things revealed to them in that manner versus we have the word to read. We don't need those things. And that's why we would be accused oftentimes of, well, they they don't believe the Holy Spirit does anything. That's not true. I believe God heals people. I do. I believe God does that every day. I just don't believe that there are specific individuals who have the gift of healing where they can go lay hands on someone and see them healed or to say, you pick up your mat and walk like the apostles did. They had the apostolic authority. So Kaylee can't smack Ron in the head and say, be healed. uh, And something happens there. Um, If God wants to heal Ron of of his craziness, then he will. Um, But it doesn't it's not coming through the means of another person doing anything as we saw with the work of the apostles. There was something going on there that we have to recognize. 
God was establishing that as these apostles go forward to establish the church in the world, they're going in my name under my authority. That is very, very important to recognize, as, as Steve was mentioning, about the office of the apostle, the office of the prophet. It's all backed by the authority of God, and that's why that is happening. But again, under, their, under that um, office, with their authority, they recorded the words of Scripture. And therefore, when we see it even as early as Acts chapter 2. The early church was gathering for four things for prayer, for the breaking of bread, for uh, to share in the Lord's Supper, and to study what? The words, the word of God that each of them got? It says the teachings of the apostles. It wasn't they were standing up and speaking in tongues and doing this and that. They were taking what they were hearing from the apostles and discussing that and working through that among themselves like we're doing right here. No different. So... It's very easy to get taken away by those things, and all it ever does is undermines the authority and sufficiency of the Word of God and the Scriptures that we have. So we have to be very, very careful as we walk that road. So a um, lot of very helpful, good resources I could point you to if you want to think more about those things and work through some of those things. But um, good? All right. Where are we? Human authors. So we are um, we are at uh, a place where we need to look at what the authors themselves said about their writing of what we now have as Scripture. So back to the front page there. Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 16 through 21, the Apostle Peter tells us exactly what we understand about um, how the Scriptures were derived. Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Where, where did that happen? Where do we see that happen or when? Okay, good. The baptism of Jesus. So the audible voice of God said, God the Father said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What holy mountain is he talking about? Good, the Mount of Transfiguration. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, what was given prophetically in the Old Testament has been confirmed fully in Jesus Christ. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So just as we were talking about before, the plenary inspiration of God and the writing of the Scripture, they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit 
The Word of God is the breathed-out Word of God through uh, human writers. Okay, so... Sure. Sure. And notice he's saying that about what he's writing. (laughs) I'm writing these things. I was eyewitness to these things. um, And I'm comparing it to the prophetic word, to the Mount of Transfiguration, um, to uh, to the voice of God at the baptism of Jesus, it's all it's all right there, and it's all on the same level of authority. So it's a bold statement. Um, he died for making statements like that, <laughs> willingly. So this is God, and again, we have to, we have to admit that there's no way for us to truly fully understand how it is that God carried these men along by the Holy Spirit, um, how does he do that? I don't know. I don't know how he does that, but he does. Um, That's what the Word of God says. So um, it's breathed out by God, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the human author, the divine author God working through the human author by the Holy Spirit. That is inspiration. So what comes out of that is the original text of Scripture. And this is where it gets very important as we talk about what we have. Where is it? Right here. What we have as our Bibles. Okay? Is this what I have written in English? Is this the original text of Scripture? No. Is my Greek New Testament at home, is that the original text of New Testament Scripture? No. It's not. What we're talking about, when we talk about the original text of Scripture, if you flip to your definitions, the the very top one there, we need to understand what is an autograph. Not like you met your favorite rock star and they autographed your T-shirt. But it's the same sort of idea. The original manuscript or document of an author's work It's from the Greek word autographos, written in one's own hand. Since no autographs of any biblical book have been discovered, scholars must work with later copies. So here's where all of the skeptics go crazy and want to just throw up uh, their arms in outrage and say, well, you don't even have the originals. They were changed, they were manipulated, and um, people were just trying to make them say certain things so that they could control the masses and, uh, and they could start a world revolution and everything else. So, I, I mean, I've heard it all many, many times. So here's, here's what I want to point out, and this, this chart on the back of your page would be very, very helpful when you're talking to that person. The reliability of the New Testament. So, can we admit that we don't have a single page in our possession written by the hand of the Apostle Paul? Yes, we don't. We don't have anything written by Paul or Peter or Matthew, Mark, Luke or John or anyone else that wrote the Scriptures originally. What we do have is copies of those writings. So everyone wants to say, well, that's where problems happen and manipulation came in. Well, consider this. We have 24,000 copies. This is just the New Testament. We have 24,000 copies of the New Testament that all agree with one another. 
that's pretty significant, right? If you wrote something down 24,000 times, is it going to be the same every time you write it? I doubt it. Um, okay, uh, those writing, those copies are dated within 40 to 70 years of their original writing. So uh, if it, something was written in 1940, uh, it was the copy was written in about 1980, 1990, 2000, something like that. Okay, 24,000 copies within 40 to 70 years of their earliest copy. Um, the next, uh, if the, the rest of these writings are things that nobody ever questions about uh, their authenticity. We go to them, we rely on them for historical data. Uh, they are read in college classrooms. They're presented as completely true. No one ever questions whether or not um, they were manipulated or changed to meet someone's agenda. Homer's Iliad. Probably read that. Someone, some of you read that? College, high school? 643 copies. Earliest copy we have from the original is 500 years old. No, none of them. No, all of them are the same, same thing. Sophocles, 193 copies, the earliest copy closest to the original, 1,400 years old. Right, you can go right down the list. Uh, Plato, we've all heard about Plato. We've read Plato's writings probably at some point in school. There's only seven copies of anything he wrote, and it's 1,200 years from the original. No one questions whether or not that's authentic. No one questions whether or not that's authoritative. No one questions whether or not it was manipulated or changed to meet someone's agenda or to make Plato to be someone he wasn't. We just read it and use it historically, and he's written about in every history book as though everything he said was, was accurate. But when it comes to the Bible, we want to question that authenticity because the copies we have, uh, the 24,000 copies we have within 40 to 70 years of its writing happen to be copies and not the original manuscripts. No. The, we, we have possession of 20, 24,000 copies have been discovered within 40 to 70 years of the originals, yeah. So since then, there's, there's, even, there's even more that have been discovered, but those are the ones within, that's the earliest, that's the earliest we have. Sure. Well, and you, you can go further into this and consider um, the importance of what was being copied, the penalties that came with manipulating texts uh, and in their copying, um, there, there was a death penalty tied to, um, uh, in, the, in the early uh, first century, if you copied someone else's writing and presented it as what they wrote, but it was inaccurate, you can be put to death as a result of that. You can be tried and, and, and killed for it. Um, of 24,000 copies, you would assume within that time, if one of them was messed up, someone would have been tried and prosecuted for it. You just don't, you don't see that. It didn't happen. Um, the evidence is overwhelming. It really is. Historically, to have documents that are nearly 2,000 years old, preserved, copied over and over and over again, we're not talking, uh, there's no Xerox machines here. 
We're talking handwritten on parchment paper uh, with a, a quill. Um, this is uh, this is tremendous. Um, you're, you're almost speechless just considering how that's even possible, let alone the fact that we have it today and can still. Um, there's uh, there's a, uh, some wonderful work going on, and um, I don't know that any of you read Greek, but um, if you even just wanted to look at it, it's really a neat thing. Um, they're, they're digitizing all of those copies and putting them on the Internet for people to go and look at and just see. You can see where the fragments have been pieced together and how they compare them to others and all of that sort of thing. It's really a neat thing. Yeah. The, uh, we have writings from 700 B.C. from Isaiah's prophecy, uh, 1200 B.C. from some of the earlier prophets. I mean, they just go back further and further. And again, they all... They all align with what we what we have, and that was centuries later. And this is, I mean, this is work being done even by secular humanists who are saying, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna test the we're gonna test you know scientifically look at the paper and date it and all this carbon dating and all that sort of thing." And they're coming to these numbers themselves. So it's not like you know some Christian conspiracy to uh, to prove all of this. Um, it's it is it is amazing as you consider that. So. We're out of time. What, uh, what, we'll continue to walk uh, through these things, and, and hopefully this is uh, helpful to you, interesting. And, um, and as you, th- my goal in doing this, uh, one, to equip you for when these questions arise and you talk to people about it, but more so that it helps all of us to have a greater, um, uh, a, a, a greater sense of being able to rely upon the Word of God, that it is sufficient. Uh, that it can be trusted. Um, so what, we'll, what we will eventually, as we walk through this, get into um, is how we got to English translations, why there are so many different ones, which ones are more reliable than others, and why, um, all of those sorts of questions. So um, that's where we're, we're headed. Any closing questions, thoughts?